You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I had a moment when I was walking up Madison Avenue and a woman in big fur coat said, oh, darling, love your cookbooks. And I said, thank you very much and kept going. And about a block later, a truck driver pulled over and leaned out of his window and said, hey, babe, love your show. (laughs) And I thought, that's what food is about. It appeals to everybody. That's Ina Garten. We sat down to discuss her early career and how she still finds inspiration in the kitchen. But first, we chat with food writer Anthony Huckstep about the real Australian cuisine, one of the most culturally diverse cuisines in the world. Anthony, how are you? Fantastic, mate. How's things over there? Probably not as interesting as things where you are, based on your article, What is Australian Food Really? It sounds more complex and more more international than what we probably have in Boston. So just give us, in a couple sentences, the basic premise of your article. Well, I guess... I was trying to sum up, we've, we've always been searching for, you know, what is Australian cuisine? And I guess we've been ruminating about it and ruminating and wanting, wanting it to be something. And then I think we've just um, matured and realised that, you know, it's, it's not about trying to create a dish that is Australian food. It's actually, food's actually about the communal t- table and conviviality. And, and I guess, the best way to define it for me is that who we are sort of defines what we eat. Well, you said that the top 10 homelands of those born overseas in order, United Kingdom, New Zealand, okay, then China, India, Philippines, Vietnam, Italy, South Africa, Malaysia, and Germany, Greece is a close 11th. So uh, as you point out, you're more likely to find a Chinese restaurant in a country pub than not. Massive Italian immigration in the 1950s. So the idea of a monoculture is just totally not true. It's just, it's a totally immigrant culture. Oh, absolutely. And I think the perception globally of Australia is that, you know, we're sort of expats from Britain. And the the reality is obviously our indigenous community has been here for over 50,000 years and the rest of us have all been here for a little bit over 200. And we've actually come from all over the place. And, you know, Australia doesn't have that rich sort of... Um, peasant sort of food culture that you have like in France and Italy that creates these dishes over centuries. You know, we've had to rely on everyone else in the world to sort of come and share their food with us. Well, one of the things you mentioned, which I should have occurred to me but didn't, was obviously Southeast Asia is very close. So the climate is perfect for growing many of those ingredients. Lemongrass, ginger, mint, chili, basil, lime, galangal. So Absolutely. I never thought of Australia in those terms. We, we are. We, we're tropical. You know, like I grew up with passion fruit vines on the back fence. We had mangoes and lychees in the fruit bowl. You know, it's, there's some parts of Australia that don't get below shorts and thongs weather. It's pretty warm. But, you know, there's, there is cold weather as well. Australia is a really big place that you can basically grow anything from all over the world here. And and that's kind of what's been happening. So, so let's talk about some of the food. You talk red braised caramelized wallaby tail, which tastes like sweet veal with a hint of gaminess. 
with black bean and chili or roast duck with sour native peaches and orange sauce. What, what are some of the dishes that, you know, I obviously would not be familiar with? Well, wallaby tail is an interesting one because it's, for those that don't know what a wallaby is, it's kind of like a small kangaroo, except it's a little bit richer and a bit gamier. And have you had kangaroo before? Uh, I did once, yes. I ate at a restaurant in Washington, D.C., which is famous for its game. And I, I did taste it once, yes. Did you like it? I did, actually. I, I liked it a lot better it's than alligator, excellent. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm the same with crocodile, actually. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so so wallaby, I guess wallaby and kangaroo, the similarities are is that they're incredibly lean meats, um, incredibly good for you. The only problem is is you have to be really careful about how you cook it, you know, and you really want to cook if it's a loin, sort of medium rare, and have something sharp with it and treat it like venison. So you, you might right. want to bring in fruits and stuff like that. So uh, one of the other recipes you mentioned is char siu roasted glacier toothfish. Yeah, the toothfish. It's uh, um, the only certified sustainable toothfish on the planet. But, you know, like we have some pretty amazing seafood here like marin, which doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. Uh, it's, I guess it's probably size-wise halfway between a prawn and a lobster, but it, it's, it's very sweet. Now, you also mentioned that the waters off Australia, a lot of it is protected, so the tonnage of fish caught off Australia is fairly small compared to the square miles. And that's because of the protection. So it's one of the greatest protected areas for fishing. Yeah, we, we expect our seafood to be sustainable. And our fishing waters are the third largest on the planet. But yet we've ranked about 80th in regard to sort of so-called productivity, which means we don't really drain the swamp. It's actually illegal in Australia to fish unsustainably. Uh, let's talk about some of the ingredients that we don't know anything about here. Uh, finger lime, lemon myrtle, wattle seed. What, what are some of the indigenous ingredients that Americans wouldn't have any experience with? Well, I think finger lime is a really important one, and I think it's one that people would get straight away and be quite excited about because it's something you can put in a gin and it's something you can <laughs> use in cooking. And it, it's, it's essentially, it, it kind of is the shape of a finger, like an index finger. And when you cut it open... There's basically little, like, almost like little um, caviar, little spheres oh. inside of citrus. And you can just squeeze the finger lime and they'll, they'll pop out and you just have these little beautiful little balls and they pop in your mouth with this beautiful burst of sort of lime hmm. and, um, and lemon. Um, and so w- let's talk about home cooking. Are there dishes which people do cook at home regularly that would be considered standard Australian fare or that just depends on you know, where, where your grandfather came from. Yeah, I think there's a bit of both in that. I think, you know, it, it's easy to sort of suggest that a classic roast chook would be a staple of most families, but perhaps what actually accompanies it would alter quite a lot. And um, you'd, you'd find a lot of Middle Eastern influences with salads and things like that, or even, you know, Vietnamese sort of dressings and... Um, I'm not, I'm not convinced that there is a national dish anymore. People talk about spaghetti bolognese, but Asia's had such a big influence on us in the last 25 years that it could well be a stir-fry. So where does this all go? Do we, at some point, stop talking about fusion cooking and, and different cuisines and it just is what it is and everyone stops thinking about it? Or is Australia at the point where it's now going through a... a a moment of trying to figure out what Australian cuisine is all about. Is that, do people talk about it or people just don't care? Well, I, I don't think we're, we're caught up on it anymore. I think what's happened is, is that there's a, a great love for looking for great produce 
and respecting the produce and then just using the best technique to let it be a hero on the plate and without having the fear of uh, reaching into a French background or a, a French technique or Japanese technique. We're, we're kind of not judgmental about that anymore because it's just become part of the culture. And I guess the most important thing is that we've kind of realised that we're all different and certainly politically and socially we're sort of getting things together just like every other country on the planet. But when it comes to food, we kind of all join the table and it's just that sense of sharing and conviviality and I think we're all in agreement there that, you know, food is what brings people together. Food doesn't have borders, right? So. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. That was Anthony Huckstep. His article for Taste is called What is Australian Food, Really? You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are, are you awake? You ready for this? <laughs> <laughs> I am ready to take some calls, Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Elisa from Carefree, Arizona. That's actually the name of the town. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. How old is the town? When was it named? Uh, in the 60s. Ah, uh, oh, that okay. makes sense. That's, the hippie yeah. days, yeah. Okay. <laughs> now we got it. Yeah. It's not from 1830. How can we help you today? So I get the magazine, and you have a recipe for orange anise bundt cake, and there was also a chocolate orange tart and both call for part of the flour in the recipe to be almonds, almond flour, and I'm allergic to tree nuts. So I was wondering if there's any harm in just substituting regular flour or if that amount of almond flour makes a big difference in the texture of the cake. That's an excellent how much, question. How much almond flour was there in there? In that one, I believe it was like 50 grams to maybe 250 grams of flour. That's why I thought it would probably be fine. Just yeah, I think that's fine. Regular flour. Almond flour has a little more fat or a lot more fat because AP flour has no fat. So if you substitute AP flour, you could put a little more fat into the that's recipe. That's a good idea. But I don't think 50 grams out of 300 grams total is going to really change your recipe very much. Just add another tablespoon of butter, for example. Okay. There is also sunflower seed or pumpkin seed flour. I mean, that's more esoteric. You'd probably have to order it online, but that might provide the same sort of interesting nutty taste as well as the fat content. Just a thought. Yeah. No, that sounds great. I'll try that. I assume if you've got a recipe where the whole recipe is almond flour, you pretty much just find another recipe. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Correct. That, that would be good. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it'll bake up very different. If half or more of the flour is almond flour, then you'd have a real problem, but a 10 or 20% is not a problem. Yeah. So. Okay, well, I may experiment with the sunflower flour. Is that right? Sunflower um, seed flour or pumpkin sunflower. seed oh, wait, wait, flour. Wait, wait, wait. So where do you... I've seen it online. Oh. Online. Yeah, that's what I think so that's where she's going to have to go. This is what Sarah does late at night when she can't fall asleep. Just search <laughs> well, up esoteric I love, flour. I love pumpkin seed oil. That's one I of do my too. all-time favorites. It's very dark and sort of yummy, like uh, toasted sesame, but it's it's different. And so why not play around with these seeds? Do you cook with, with it seeds? or just use it as an ingredient? 
As flavoring, no, not cooking. I use it more as a finishing oil than a cooking oil. So I'll actually cut it with some vegetable oil in vinaigrettes. But it'd be good drizzled on grilled vegetables. Any place where a sort of a nutty, toasted taste would add something, you know, on cheese. Keep in mind, though, that all nut and seed flours, they go rancid very quickly. Once you open them, they should be refrigerated. That's why my refrigerator downstairs is full of strange flowers. <laughs> I bet you have all sorts of weird things in your fridge. Tonic water and strange flowers. Yes. At any rate, Elisa, thank yeah, you I so much. Yeah, give that a shot. I think you won't well, have thank a problem. You. Okay. okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know why your cheesecake cracks or you have any other questions, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jason from Raleigh, North Carolina. How are you? Doing great. First of all, thanks for taking my call. I love, sure. love, love sure. the show. But uh, I have to give you a little backstory first. So I've been living in Raleigh, but I grew up in South Louisiana. So as a part of keeping my culinary tradition alive, I make really big batches of roux in the fall and usually a brown roux and a really really dark brown roux and i'll put it in tupperware freeze it and then just as the year goes along use it for pretty much just gumbo and etouffee type dishes and i have so much of it and i really don't know what to do with all my roux <laughs> and that good rhyming. This is, um, this is Dr. Zeus calling. Yes. Uh, that's good. Um, well, you know, I would think about it in Sarah's terms, which is a demi-gloss, which is a highly reduced stock, and using that so it's a base. So I love to roast a chicken in a small cocotte or pan or Dutch oven. And I think if you put a few tablespoons of that dark roux at the bottom of that pan with a chicken and some garlic and some rosemary or tarragon, uh, and the juices come out and they mix with the roux. It would give that really wonderful dark uh, sauce. It'd be a great base for gravy. You could use it as a base in beef stew. I think it's a stock base almost, right? Yeah. I mean, two things for people who don't know what uh, Louisiana roux is all about. You take the butter flour stuff that you usually cook together at Thanksgiving to thicken your turkey gravy, but you cook it much, 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 much longer till it gets a very dark color. And it, and that kind of roux, a dark roux, is added to a gumbo, not just for its thickening power, but for its flavor, especially for its flavor. It's a very, very important part of Louisiana cooking. However, the longer you cook the flour, the less it will thicken. So when you're adding it to thicken a gravy, you have to keep that in mind. That's all. But So you use it as a flavoring component. Yeah. I can see that. And I agree with everything that Chris just said. And by the way, I think that is brilliant to freeze it because it's work to make a dark roux. How long does it take in the oven? Oh, goodness. The amount that I make, probably six hours. Wow. Hmm. At what temperature um, in the oven? Uh, I want to say probably around 300, Yeah. 3 to 350. And you use oil or you use butter? Uh, neither. I tend to use locally sourced free-range pig lard. Oh, man, this is not fair. Now you're talking. Nah, man, yeah, you're the real deal. Yeah, now you're you. talking. That's terrific. It smells amazing. Yeah. Uh, what I usually do is a one-to-one -one ratio, but do it by weight. And I don't know if you've ever tried it like that, Chris, but 
a lot of uh, people in South Louisiana say that weight is the way huh. to go when no, you're I've never heard that. figuring out that ratio. Well, now you're talking with the pork fat there. It's, I think it's got tons. We, of I think flavor. at Mill Street we need to taste it, and make sure it's okay. Yeah, I, th- I think also it'd go great in chili and you know. Do you freeze in ice cube trays or something so you have portions or? Somewhat small tubs, like quart size, yeah. uh, maybe a little bit smaller tubs. Yeah. And then I'll just use a scoop, like a little stainless steel scoop, and eyeball it. That's terrific. We applaud. That's the best idea I've heard in a yeah, long time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good for you. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I think we benefit yeah. from this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for calling. That Thanks sounds fabulous. Tip. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, take yeah. care. Thanks again. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with Ina Garten. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm 
creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Over the last 25 years, Ina Garden has gone from White House budget analyst, caterer, and small store owner to being one of the most beloved and recognized home cooks in America. In her latest book, Cook Like a Pro, Ina focuses on how to cook, not just what to cook. Today, we chat about how she turned a small gourmet shop into a huge success and eventually a career in television. Ina, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Chris? Uh, it's been a while. It has. Since we last spoke. Uh, so everyone, I think, knows your story, and we've talked about it, but you worked in the White House uh, as a budget analyst on uh, nuclear energy budget and policy it papers. seems like another lifetime ago. Yeah, it was a lifetime ago. But, you know, here's my question. You, you see this ad for this 400-square-foot specialty store out in West Hampton Beach, uh, Long Island, and you say, well, you know, maybe I should do something I like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you moved out there. What, what was it you were really bad at? Because going from a policy analyst to a retailer is so different. What were you really bad at and what were you really good at? Uh, at the that, store? At the beginning, Well, in yeah. the beginning, I think I, I did everything. You know, when, when you have a store and you have two employees, you do everything. So you bake bread and you make cakes and you, um, I mean, you're everywhere. And I think I was bad at following through because I'd start something and then <laughs> start something else. And I remember going home one day and I forgot that I had like 30 carrot cakes in the oven. <laughs> I came back the next day. <laughs> oh. It was a disaster. Um, I think it, when you when you have a situation like that and you don't know anything about it, you just jump right in and you just do everything. And I think I was probably bad at um, managing my life because I was there like 20 hours a day. I'd go home, sleep really fast and come back again. But I loved it. So it didn't feel like it was work. It felt like it was, it was like a huge sandbox and I just had so many fun things to do. So was it hard translating your cooking from home cooking to retail cooking when you're making 30 carrot cakes? That requires a totally different mindset in terms of prep and how, how you organize yourself in the kitchen. Did that take time? Um, it took time to actually scale things up. What I did was I, when I bought the store, it actually came with a notebook of recipes that the woman who had been running it for, for made. So she made pies, and she made some things in quantities. But I kind of wanted to ramp it up and make it a little fancier. And what I learned really fast is that people didn't want fancy food. They wanted good home cooking. Hmm. And so I remember making things like, uh, you know, some... Uh, 
there was a Swedish dish called Jansen's Temptation. I have no idea what it is now. It was like potatoes and 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 herring or something. And, <laughs> and I remember I, nobody bought it, <laughs> of course. And I thought, well, we'll just have it for staff lunch. And the staff didn't even want it. <laughs> so, Cross that one so off. I learned, I learned what, I mean, actually, a really good example of it is I remember um, doing, I thought, well, I'll just make roast chicken. But I, I wanted to put it out in a really nice way. So I had a big platter and fresh herbs on the bottom, right. and I had roast chicken on it and nobody bought any and I thought what, what, what's wrong with this everybody wants roast chicken for dinner and then I thought it's too fancy and so I took the whole platter back into the kitchen I took the chickens off I put them in those little red and white paper cups that you have for right. french fries right. I, and I lined them up on the counter and they were gone in five minutes huh. And so I thought what was interesting about what I was doing is that it was I would do things all the time and I'd watch what, what did people like? What did they not like? Where did they want to buy Parmesan cheese? I would put Parmesan cheese all over the store. And i go, oh, that's really interesting. They wanted to buy it at the register on the way out. So, so how, how much of retailing is impulse? Is, is 50% of it impulse buying? Well, I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of it is, is being smart. And people would come in and say, oh, I just came in for a, a baguette. And they walked out with you know, $50 right. worth of groceries. So I think it's about visuals. I think it's if their things smell good, they taste good, it's fun being in the store. It was always important to me. I would walk out of the store and I'd walk back in and say, okay, what do I hear? What do I smell? What do I see? What's interesting? And uh, we had samples out so you could taste things. We had Frank's Sinatra cranked up on the CD player, and uh, and it was just fun being there. I, I loved when people would just say, oh, oh, I'll just meet you at Barefoot Contessa. And while they were there, you know, they'd get coffee and a muffin or something like that. So uh, the, the name Barefoot Contessa was the name of the store when you bought it, is that correct? It was. It now, was. I, I looked up the movie because I, I yeah. haven't seen it with Ava Gardner. It's actually a dark movie. Well, that's what I was going to say to you. I mean, as you know, it ends in a multiple murder and Ava Gardner gets <laughs> shot. So the Barefoot Contessa dies at the end of the movie. I thought that was so interesting that Barefoot Contessa, to most people, has a somewhat happier <laughs> feeling, doesn't so. it? Somewhat happier. <laughs> I think it's the image of being elegant and earthy. And actually, when I bought the store, I thought the first thing I'm going to do is change the name because it doesn't say what it is. It has nothing right. to do with food. It doesn't say who it is. It doesn't have somebody's name. It was just an idea. But as I started but I didn't want to do it right off the bat because it was known. And I thought, well, maybe over time I would change it. But I realized what it, it, the idea of it is really about being elegant and earthy. And that's what I think Ava Gardner was, and that's what the, right. the movie was about. And in a funny way, that really kind of captured what I think the store is. Yeah, your, your brand is interesting. You are, um, you know, you're my generation, uh, yet you really have... I don't know if cult status is right, but you have a very strong following, a large following. You can fill a 2,000-seat theater, for example, as you well know. Um, so, and you're doing it from a brand that is about comfort uh, and making people feel good about their home and themselves and their cooking. Thank you. And could you just talk about that? Because it's so antithetical to what you see today, you know, in social media. It's sort of the opposite of what most people are trying to sell. I, I, you know, I never set out to do a brand. I mean, everybody says, how do you get a brand? And, and <laughs> you don't actually set out to get a brand. You actually do what you do as well as you possibly can. And then someday I think you realize you have something that right. people, that resonates with people. There's something about food that's different that um, is just, if you, 
a lot of people stop me in the street and they say, you taught me how to cook, which makes me feel great. I started because I love writing cookbooks and I thought it would be really interesting to do when I love developing recipes. But what I found is it gives people, it doesn't give people something, it gives them the tools to do something themselves. And that makes people right. feel good. And when you cook, everybody shows up. I mean, if somebody calls and says, come for dinner, I'm cooking, who says no? Nobody. Right. <laughs> they all show up. And then you create a community around yourself of people that you love, who you love to cook for and take care of, and they take care of each other. And right. I think that's what we're missing a lot in this world. We're, we're more and more um, isolated in our houses. We think we're connected with social media, but in fact, it's not that kind of soul satisfying connection. We're just connected in a, some superficial way. And people vent on social media, which they would never do. They, they would have a deeper discussion about something. Um, so I think cooking really leads to um, real connections and real community, which I think we're really hungry for. And a lot of people who are younger than I am, um, their parents work. They, they weren't home making pasta and bread and things like that. So there's nobody in the kitchen like cooking for us anymore. So I think there's something about my show where it feels like you're sitting on the other side of the counter and I'm cooking for you. That makes people feel good. No, I think that's right. It's intimate. Does that sound right? It, it's exactly right. It's intimate and comfortable at the same time. It's a, it's a safe place where you feel welcome, which I think... Um, Thank you. You know, I, there are other, some other people who do that, but if you do that particularly well, because also the, the, the feeling of the space is also just right. I had a moment, I'll just tell you the story. I had a moment when I was walking up Madison Avenue and a woman in big fur coat said, oh, darling, love your cookbooks. And I said, thank you very much and kept going. And about a block later, a truck driver pulled over and leaned out of his window and said, hey, babe, love your show. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's what food is about. It appeals to everybody. So Martha Stewart walked into your store at some point. Uh, how did that get started? I think you had a column in the magazine. How did that work? I met, my desk was right in front of the cheese counter, and I, I, she walked in, and we started talking, and we became good friends. We did some benefits together. Um, I did the catering. She was, um, it was at her house. Um, we, we did a lot of things together, and, um, and she asked me to be a guest on the show a few times, and she asked me to be a columnist in her magazine, which was wonderful. Uh, you love to quote Oscar Wilde, work is easy, fun is hard. Um, <laughs> but you sold the store and then had a year off before you went in this other direction. And you said that was the hardest year of your life. That was hard because you had nothing to it was do? Because it was because you from, didn't know what to do? What? Well, first, I didn't know whether... I mean, running the specialty food store was like going to a party every day. But, you know, at some point, you, you want to do something besides go to a party. And it was it's hard work, and I had 50 employees, and somebody was always crying out the back door. And I felt I knew how to do this, and I like a challenge. So a friend suggested that type A people think that they can figure out what to do next while they're doing something, and they can't. They just have to stop. So I thought, okay, I'll sell the store to the employees. And then I spent a year. I, I made myself go to the office every morning at 9 o'clock, and I had nothing to do. So I just, you know, I remember I went from making a 1,000 baguettes one day to having literally nothing to do, and that's probably the hardest thing I can, I can do, do is have no, have no reason to get up in the morning. And I, I kind of felt that maybe my career was over. I felt that maybe I'd done the best work I, I was going to do, and I wasn't going to figure something else out. And then, you know, after about a year of having nothing to do, 
I was really at my wit's end. And Jeffrey said, just stay in the game. You love the food business. You love to travel, learn new things. Um, isn't there another way that you can do the food business beside having a specialty food store? And I thought, well, I don't know. People have asked me to write a cookbook, and I have no interest in writing a cookbook, but at least I'll have something to do tomorrow. So I just started. And uh, I wrote a, a proposal for a book. I sent it to my dream publisher, which was Martha had actually suggested I go to Clarkson Potter, right. which was her right. publisher. And they accepted the offer. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> now, now I have to actually do write the book. <laughs> and, you know, it's like one of those things when you stand on the side of the pond and you think about, you know, should I jump in the pond? Is it too too dark? Is it too cold? Are there fish in there? You just jump in the pond and you figure it out when you get in there. And that's what I sort of did. Well, some people jump in the pond and drown. I mean, it's not not <laughs> well, everybody you, comes out swimming, you know what I mean? Well, so. if you jump in the pond, it seems to me that if you think you're going to drown right there, you go somewhere else and figure out how, right. to, how to do some, do it some other way. But I like that. I like the clarity of that, that you don't have a choice. Either you, you have to swim, you have to figure it out. Uh, everyone does their best work when they have no other choice. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's probably, that's a great expression. Yeah. That's exactly right. So let's talk about your new book, Cook Like a Pro and Cooking in General. Sarah Moulton's my co-host on this show. And she, she said something to me interesting. She said she used to do all the mise en place, all the prep work ahead of time before cooking. And that's what I've told people for decades, right? Mm -hmm. And she said she doesn't do that anymore. She, she, she breaks it into component parts. So if you're going to you know, soften onions for 10 minutes a skillet, that's time where you can worry about the next step. So she breaks it mm -hmm. down into parts. Do you do all the prep when you cook at home ahead of time or do it in parts? Uh, it depends on the recipe and how I'm doing it. But if I'm doing it straight through and into the oven, I definitely break it into parts. While I'm sauteing the onions, I'll be prepping something else. And do you clean up as you go, which is... No. I'm the messiest cook you've ever known. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, my God. Jeffrey thinks I can bring dinner home from a store, reheat it, and use every dish in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm such a mess. Really? <laughs> I, I just I like to just... just cook. And then afterwards, I just deal with the dishes. So if you ever invite me over for dinner, I won't complain about the dishes in the sink, just so you know. Just maybe that'll <laughs> Thank just you. inspire I appreciate you. It. You're invited. <laughs> oh, great. I'll actually do the dishes. How about that? I'm very good at that. Um, I noticed in your book, and virtually everybody's book these days, the influence from other cultures. You have faro, you have Israeli salad, pasole, tzatziki, shakshuka, etc. You mentioned Yotam Odolenghi once or twice. Uh, from London, the Baba Ganoush. So are these recipes starting to become part of everybody's uh, repertoire here in the United States, you think? I don't know. I'm trying to think of other people's recipes. Um, I, I pretty much stick to my own, but I think you can't keep doing roast chicken all day. Right. You have to kind of extend yourself. And I think my sense of curiosity takes me to other places like Adolenghi and in France, I, I go to food stores and cafes, and, and you pick up ideas from places. So I think that's really what influences my cooking. Um, Moscata poached fruit. That's one of my – I love it because it's so simple, just poaching yeah. some fruit and some sweet wine. Uh, what's that basic recipe, and why is it in the book? It's just one of those sort of homey things, but I think the Moscato really elevates it so that the sweetness of the Moscato and the fruit. I like things. Um, I have a, a recipe in another book that's peaches and sauterne. I like things where the peaches 
flavor the sauterne, and the sauterne flavors the peaches. And I think the Moscato fr poached fruit is the same thing. The prunes and the pe dried peaches and all the dried fruit kind of flavor the Moscato, mm. the, the syrup it makes, and the Moscato flavors the fruit. So each thing, they don't stand apart, they meld together. And that's the kind of recipe I'm always looking for. Anything, any little memory from the last 20 years, something that sticks with you from the old store to your TV days, uh, anything that kind of was surprising to you, is memorable, you think about, wish you had done it differently, glad you didn't do it differently? <laughs> um, I think probably one of the really enduring memories I'll always have is I was driving into New York and my editor from Clarkson Potter called me. It was 1999 and he called me and he said, can you stop by the office on your way? Wherever you, where are you? And I said, I'm just driving into New York. He said, stop by the office. And I drove, I pulled up to this, they were on 52nd street then. And he met me on the street and he handed me my first book. And I just couldn't believe that it was exactly what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be accessible, but beautiful enough for a gift. And to have this object in my hands that I had created just one page at a time, one recipe at a time, and one photo shoot at a time was really one of the thrilling things of my life. And that I've gotten to do it for the last 20 years is amazing to me. Okay, so I'm, it makes me so angry that I want your life. But, <laughs> I think you I mean, have my life, Chris. <laughs> I do? Uh, yeah, you maybe, do. <laughs> maybe I, I should look more inward <laughs> find the happiness there. I don't know. Ida, thank you. It's been, uh, it we so should do this wonderful. again. And uh, I uh, will be happy to wash your dishes someday. <laughs> Anytime. Standing over. Come for okay. dinner. I'll wash the dishes. Deal. Ida, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris. That was Ina Garten. Her new book is called Cook Like a Pro. You know, a magician obscures the truth of the illusion for the benefit of the audience. The trick itself is usually mundane. It's the presentation that makes all the difference. Other careers, such as food, offer really the same illusion. To make it to the national culinary stage requires grit, practice, and endurance, while all the time making it look easy. Ina Garten does make it look easy, but don't be fooled. The likes of Martha Stewart, Ina Garten, and Lydia Bastianich are smart, clever, hardworking, and know a thing or two about endurance. From the audience, a magic trick is effortless magic. To the performer, it's simply a matter of practice. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, roast chicken. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I interviewed Nigella Lawson recently on the show, and she mentioned a term in her new book called Tray Bakes, which obviously is an English term. And I asked her what it was, and it was chicken or chicken parts, and you bake other stuff with it on a sheet pan. So it's all it happens at once. So I like the name, and I like the idea. We brought it back to the kitchen. But we thought we'd take that concept and adapt it to something else. So we have chicken, we have a tray. Now what are we going to do? So we have bone-in skin on chicken parts here. You can mix that up. You can use breasts, thighs, drumsticks, whatever combination you want here. They go on a sheet tray with a spice rub, and this particular one has coriander, ginger, salt, and pepper, and sugar. It's baked in the oven for about 40 minutes at 450, and that allowed us to get the crispy skin we wanted. It also created a um, fond on our pan, which was another opportunity to make some flavor and add something different to this very simple baked chicken recipe. Lynn, are you just teasing me? 
So, 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 so what's the special thing we're going to do? So we're going to make the sauce right on the sheet tray. Initially, we just deglaze the pan and use that fawn to kind of make a quick sauce with lemon juice and zest. But what we found was we could add something else onto the tray. And so we added 10 garlic cloves, actually, onto the tray. It goes in the oven with the chicken. So that roast in the oven gets really nice and sweet and caramelized and soft. You just smash the garlic right on the tray and then whisk in the water and the lemon juice and the herbs and it creates a really nice pan sauce on your sheet tray, which is a pan, but typically we think of doing that on the stovetop. It's all done right on that hot sheet tray. So you bake the chicken parts and roast the sauce ingredients on the same thing, yep. and then you actually make the sauce on the hot sheet pan. We do. I like that. Very, very easy. Good. It sounds a little joy of cooking, but actually it's what old is new. Lynn, thank you so much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for roast chicken at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, good afternoon. This is Paul Wood in Roberta, Georgia. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. Thank you for taking my call. A pleasure. Um, I don't like to tell my wife this very often because, you know, I don't want her to know that I know how to follow instructions, but uh, I can follow a recipe pretty well, I think. Uh, I can get around in the kitchen a little bit, and um, I enjoy cooking. I do as much of it as I can. But uh, something I've always wondered is uh, exactly why am I using ingredient X instead of ingredient Y. So I was wondering if you could uh, recommend a book to me that really gets into the science behind the cooking. Sure. Um, do you have a pencil? Uh, yes, sir. I have quite a few. Um, Shirley Corhair, C-O-R-R-I-H-E-R. She did two books, one on baking and... Cook-wise yeah, and cook-wise bake-wise. and bake-wise. Those were very good with recipes. The Food Lab by an old colleague of mine, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Uh, that also won awards. Just last year, Samin Nosrat wrote a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. Won a James Beard Award. Uh, Home Cooking 101 by, who's that by? Moi. Okay, by Sarah. You know what? I was also going to recommend sort of the flip side of the food lab. Kenji sort of was discovered, well, by you all, and then he's been working with Serious Eats. Somebody else who works for Serious Eats is a woman who's come out with a book called Brave Tart. Yeah, she's been on the show. She's very good at the science of baking. Brave Tart is excellent if you want classic American desserts. Yeah. She also does recipes for Fig Newtons and Oreos and candies and fun stuff. But her research is terrific. She does a great job with the science of it as well. So those are just a few. Of course, the granddaddy of them all is Harold McGee. M-C-G-E-E, his book on food and cooking, I think was originally written in the 1970s. It's a very, very dry read. It's very dry. If you seriously like to read about science, that's a good book for you. But for a lot of us, it's a hard hard slog. Well, if you want the molecular answer, but it's hardcore. Yes. So those are just a few you might want to try. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes, hi. My name is Ro. Hi, Ro. What is your question today? My question is regarding duck breast. I'm a fan of eating duck, 
and it's always served pretty, you know, rare, medium rare. And I've always wondered why it's okay to eat duck in that rare, medium rare state, whereas you should not eat other poultries like chicken and turkey that way. Like, what is the difference, and why is it okay for duck? You know, we've had this question before, and it's an excellent question. First of all, if you cook duck breast to 160 or 65, you would have to throw it out. They'd just be very tough. That's Although not that's, an option. That's what the government wants you to do. I think the answer to your question is that the poultry industry is obviously a huge industry. People eat very little duck. I think you're dealing with very different conditions on the farm. And so the incidence of contamination in duck is very, very low. Much, much lower than... In poultry, uh, it's fairly high. Chicken and turkey is yeah. something like 85%. Oh. Yeah, it's very high. Consumer wow. reports, yeah. Well, so, so duck is uh, smaller farms, and they're not raised... And in... also they're slaughtered a different way. Yes. They're not, there's not as much possibility for cross-contamination with ducks when they're slaughtered. So I think that's why. But, you know, you make choices. Yes, yes. People tell you not even to eat steak rare, or certainly not hamburger, which is a different matter because it's ground up. I would say, right, though, in right. general, and I'm not nervous about anything, but I am a little nervous about poultry, I actually buy small producers' organic. I, I, I stay the away. Bad news. There's, oh, no. There's, Here we go. There's uh, Campylobacter and Salmonella in organic chickens, too. Well, I know that. I'm just thinking that maybe the incidence would be better in a lower it might. producer. It might. It might. But for some reason, duck is, is safer, although I'm sure the USDA would say we're wrong. I only eat duck medium rare, and I love it. And by the way, it's so good for you. It's got more iron than a lot of red meat. And that fat that it gives off it has a lot of the same properties as olive oil. So it's a good thing to be eating. But again, as I'm eating it, I'm always wondering why this is okay. So I'm glad I got my question answered. Well, I don't think Daffy would be happy about it, but, but, we're, <laughs> <laughs> but we say it's okay. Yes, we do. Ro, thank you so much. Yes. Appreciate the thank call. Thank you very yeah. much. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. One of my favorite pantry items at home is pomegranate molasses. It's both sweet and sour and can pretty much change your cooking overnight. Here are a bunch of ways to use it. Blend it into a simple olive oil vinaigrette. Drizzle it over roasted vegetables. Add a spoonful to a bowl of braised lentils and garnish with feta and herbs for a simple meal. It also brings out the best in sliced tomatoes. Just add torn mint or basil, a little olive oil, and coarse salt. We like to slather it on roast lamb, pork, or chicken, while the meat rests after cooking. Finally, it's a great mixer. Mix with vodka and salsa water, or skip the booze and add pomegranate molasses to ginger beer or iced tea with a squeeze of lime. It'll even make a great Shirley Temple or Roy Rogers. For more culinary tips and ideas, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Next up is J. Kenji Lopez-Alt on a common kitchen conundrum. Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. So uh, what's the topic? Um, I thought we'd talk about pizza, mainly because I read this interesting um, study that just came out about why uh, Neapolitan pizzas bake up the way they do and sort of the physics of a Neapolitan pizza oven. And in that article, the authors concluded that there's no way to replicate Neapolitan pizza at home, which I, I somewhat agree with, but I think you can get pretty darn close. So just to define it, 
you mean like a 900-degree oven and the pizza cooks in a minute? You know, is that what you mean by yes. Neapolitan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like one of those real hardcore Neapolitan right. pizzas. Yeah, 900 degrees, pizza cooks 60 to 90 seconds. And, right. and you know, for the, the, the reason that delivers such a great pizza is because with that really intense heat, you end up with a very, very thin layer of crackly sort of charred crust on the outside. And with that intense heat, you get a lot of oven spring, which is, you know, the, the, the proofing right. that happens when you place bread in an oven. You get a lot of oven spring, so you have a very sort of moist cloud-like interior and that very, very thin crackly crust. And that's sort of like the hallmarks of a good Neapolitan pizza. So, you know, the, the reason that works in an actual brick oven with wood fire, you're starting with an oven floor of around seven to 900 degrees. And when you place a pizza in that kind of environment, both the top and the bottom sort of cook at about the same rate. So by the time the bottom is done, the top is mostly done. The problem when you try and do that in a home oven, the main problem is, is that your oven can't get hot enough. Most home ovens maybe max out at around 550 degrees. Um, so your pizza takes much longer to cook in a home oven than it does in a true pizza oven. And that leads to crust that's a little bit too thick and your dough kind of dries out and becomes crackery. So you don't get that really nice contrast. The other problem with a home oven uh, is that you're transferring heat through a different method than you are with a Neapolitan pizza oven. So in both cases, the bottom of the pizza is cooking through a method called conduction, which, which is basically where energy is transferred directly from one surface to another. So in this case, the stone to the bottom of the pizza. In the case of a Neapolitan pizza oven, the top is being cooked somewhat by radiation that is um, electromagnetic radiation that's coming out of the, uh, the brick walls of the oven, the same way that you sort of feel the heat of the sun on your skin. But a lot of it is also through uh, convection. So if you look at the way a fire is built in a Neapolitan oven, um, you usually have a big flame in the back, a pile of burning logs and, and charcoal, and a chimney at the front. So hot air is kind of drawn from that fire and gets pulled over the top of the oven and out the chimney. And so a lot of the top surface of a pizza is cooking via convection. That is the, you know, the hot air blowing against it um, is helping it cook. Many home ovens don't have convection fans, period. Um, so you're not going to get any of that convection cooking. And even ones that do have convection fans, you're not going to be getting the same level of convection that you would in a Neapolitan pizza oven. Um, and so what that means is if you try and just throw a pizza on a baking stone in a home pizza oven, most likely you're going to burn the bottom before the top is completely cooked. So the question is, how do you make this work in a home oven? Well, you can't really get convection very well in a home oven, um, but most home ovens do have broilers. So instead of using convection, what you can do is just bump up the radiation. So by turning on your broiler as you, as you cook a pizza, you can sort of make it match the pace that the bottom is cooking. And as for getting the bottom to cook faster, you know, nowadays a lot of people have, and, and you've talked about these a lot, baking steels instead of baking stones. Baking steels. I and mean, the idea there is that steel is going to transfer energy to the bottom of the dough much faster than a stone can, even if they're at the exact same temperature. So by using a combination of steel and a broiler, you can, you know, you can get very close. Maybe, maybe you get like a two and a half minute cook time instead of a 90 second cook time, but you can get, you can get pretty close to what an actual Neapolitan pizza does. Have you ever tried moving uh, the steel or stone up to a rack about two thirds up the oven? I, I find that also helps because you get, there's more heat at the top of the oven and the top and the bottom actually cook at a more even rate. Did you ever try that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I would actually recommend that, keeping the steel somewhere around four inches away from the broiler element, because right. further away you are, the radiation sort of drops off pretty rapidly. So you want to be pretty close to that broiler. You, you know, I was at Michael's in uh, Naples many, many years ago. It's one of the, I guess, oldest pizza pizza. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, here's what I found interesting. Everybody ate their pizza with a knife and fork. Right. 
And I didn't understand it because I was waiting for my pizza. I was actually timing how long it took. It was a typical Yeah, I, I did the exact same thing at that restaurant. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I had a table right in front of the oven. And then they brought the pizza out. You know, they had only had three pizzas, right, three styles. And right. it turns out you need a knife and fork because the center of the pizza is soggy. Yeah, it's like soup. And, and so when, when you sing the praises of Neapolitan pizza, we do have to say it's a knife and fork pizza in the center, partially because the buffalo mozzarella is, I think, kind of wet, um, it right. isn't crispy. It's not a crispy pizza in the middle, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think most most um, places in the U.S. that call themselves Neapolitan pizza, they do a style that, well, at Siri Seats, we used to call it Neo-Neapolitan, where it's essentially Neapolitan, but it has a fully crispy bottom crust so that you can right. still cut it into slices and pick it up just because that's what people here uh, expect. You know, and, and that's the style I actually prefer. I, I like my pizza crispy all the way across the bottom. Yeah, I felt, I, I was, I, at first I went like, well, they obviously know more of pizza than I do, but I go like, I don't really want a soggy crust in the middle. Right. <laughs> so everything else was fabulous. I mean, the, the, the crust on the outside was great, but uh, that, that did surprise me. So the answer to Neapolitan pizza at home without a knife and fork is use a broiler, use a baking steel, and place it about four inches underneath the broiler. Kenji, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. He's also the chief culinary advisor for Sirius Eats. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Anthony Huckstep about Australian food. You know, since we know so little about Australian food, I wondered what we don't know about the wildlife down under, and here's what I discovered. The emu can run at speeds up to 28 miles per hour. The platypus is highly poisonous. Australia is home to 17 of the world's most poisonous snakes. The box jellyfish of the Great Barrier Reef is responsible for more deaths than snakes, sharks, and saltwater crocodiles combined. A kangaroo can chase you down, kicking as it hops. Well, I'll go to Australia for the food, but maybe not so much for the wildlife. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always find Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new book, The Complete Milk Street TV Show Cookbook. And if you never want to miss a recipe or an idea, please follow us on social. You can find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and find us on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>